good to see you all here at the EU public meeting for week nine. The uh, faithful remnant who continue to come weekly to public meetings, despite mid-semester break and the rain. Uh, good to see you all here. Can I encourage you to uh, keep setting aside the time to come to public meetings for the rest of semester uh, as we open the Bible publicly, as we uh, hear from God's Word. And today we're going to do that. We're going to uh, spend some time in Luke 4, the passage that was read for us, because for this week and the next two weeks, we're starting the series, as Trish indicated, on what it means for us to love the marginalised and the vulnerable. Uh, this is a series of three weeks that the EU executive have uh, asked us to put together uh, under this sort of broad heading of Christian living. And for those of you who have not met me, I'm Paddy. Uh, the EU invites me to come and speak at various things, and so I'm here for the next three weeks. Uh, we're going to uh, consider this particular topic of what it means to love the marginalised and the vulnerable. I think it's quite an important topic that we need to, um, just as part of our growth and Christian maturity, keep setting aside some time in our Christian life to be thinking about and being prayerful about, to be uh, considering what God's Word said to us. And what I want to try and do, my plan over the next three weeks, is to try and cover this particular topic in the following way. Today, what I'd like to do is I'd like to try and spend some time thinking a bit more deeply about the nature of God and His character and how His character is reflected in the way in which He expects His people of Israel to live, both individually and corporately, and the implications that this has for how Jesus sees his life and ministry working out with regard to the marginalised and the vulnerable. That's what I'm going to try and do today. Uh, next week, what I'd like to try and do is spend time looking at the particular implications of what we look at this week for ourselves individually as believers, particularly how should we then develop, if you like, a personal ethic with regard to what it means to love the marginalised and the vulnerable. Um, we'll cover a whole lot of uh, ground in doing that. And then in the third week, what I want to try and do is then extend and build on our thinking both from this week and next week to consider the implications of what this would mean as you move from a personal ethic to a corporate or a societal ethic. What should the implications be from what we read in the Bible today, from what we understand next week about what it means and the implications for us personally, as to how that is to be lived out both within society, we as individuals, but also how should the corporate church, the gathering of believers, also bear witness to this and live out what it means to love the marginalised and the vulnerable. That's the plan for the next couple of weeks. I hope in some senses that's enough to whet your appetite and to get you to go, yep, I'm definitely coming back for the next two weeks. Okay, So I'm not going to try and cover everything this week, that's why it's a three-week series. So I thought as we considered this particular topic, that it'd be good to turn our minds to some of the particular challenges and questions that it might raise for you. Now, you might be a very diligent public meetings attendee. You might await with bated breath the public meetings program to come out, and then you note in your diary about what's going to happen every week. So from annual conference, when the public meetings team said, this is the plan for second semester, you've already been maybe diarising or journaling some of the questions and challenges that this three-week series will have for you. Yeah, I didn't think so. Uh, I mean, there may be some who are like that. I suspect for some of you, you've turned up this week because you come regular to public meetings and you're going, we're doing the what? Oh, okay, loving the marginalised and the vulnerable. I better get my head into gear. So I'm going to give you a moment to do that, actually. Why don't you talk to the people around about you just for one minute and try and answer this question. What questions or challenges do you think you have in trying to wrestle with this particular topic about what it means to love the marginalised and the vulnerable? Yeah, good question. So, who are the marginalised and the vulnerable? Does the Christian definition to maybe the world's definition of that? Yep. 
How can I, as a poor uni student with limited skills, did you say? Really? You're all Sydney University students. Aren't there no limits to what you can do and what you can achieve? No, I, I hear the question. So how, how can I, with certain limitations and constraints, can I actually do anything? Can I make a difference? Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, one more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the Gen Z dilemma, isn't it? There's just too many good things. So do all of them. And you sit there going, oh, anxiety levels just went through the roof. You just go, there's too many good things, so you do nothing. Okay, that's probably going to be next week. We're going to try and deal with that, and I'll persuade you to action, okay, next week. So if you're a bit afraid of being committed to action, you really do need to come next week, okay? So as we try and work out what the Bible says on this particular topic, what better place to start than hearing the words of Jesus? Which is why we're starting in this particular passage in Luke 4, and it really is an astounding claim that he makes at the very early days of his public ministry. Right from day one, when he turns up at his hometown in Nazareth, uh, these are the words that we read in Luke 4, and I think this has just stopped, so I'm just going to take it off because it's not going to work. Musa will tell me if I'm too quiet. That's all right. You can hear me up the back. Yeah, good. As long as Musa stays awake, I'm loud enough, okay? Uh, it really is quite an amazing thing that Jesus does when he starts in Luke chapter 4. What are the claims that Jesus makes? He's reading from the scroll of Isaiah chapter 61. Uh, we've read the passage. Notice the claims that Jesus makes. He says that the promises that Isaiah 61 made hundreds of years ago are fulfilled in that day in Jesus. That alone is an amazing claim, that any individual would be able to stand up and say, these words of Holy Scripture, the words that God has given through His prophets hundreds of years earlier, I am now the fulfillment of them. That's the claim that Jesus is making. But notice what the promises of Isaiah 61 indicate. It promises a significant anointing of the Spirit. And as we saw at annual conference this year when we dealt with the Holy Spirit, often in the Old Testament this was for a particular task. It's the promise of the proclamation of good news to the poor. It's the promise of the release of prisoners from captivity. It's the promise of the blind being able to see. It's the promise of the release for those who are oppressed. Now remember, this is right at the start of Jesus' public ministry. This is, in some senses, if you like, this is Jesus' sort of mission statement for what the rest of his ministry is going to be like. This is the claim that he is making. It is an astounding claim that this one man would be able to say, not only am I the fulfillment of, of this particular promise, but all of this will be delivered in what I'm about to do in my life. He is clearly, right from day one, expecting that his ministry will be directed, actually, towards the marginalised and the vulnerable. To whom will it be directed? Those who are poor, they will be preached good news. Those who are in captivity or prisoners, they will be released. Those who are blind, they will now be able to see. Those who are now oppressed, they will be released. Notice what he's not said. I'm going to go and spend a lot of time with the rich. I'm going to go and spend a lot of time with the powerful. I'm going to go and bring about a whole new political upheaval. No, no, actually right from day one, Jesus' ministry is directed towards the marginalised and the vulnerable. Now, as you read through the rest of Luke 4, one of the things you'll notice is that to the locals who are listening, because it was the local synagogue in which Jesus was speaking, the locals really just saw him as Joseph's boy. I said, isn't this Joseph's boy? They may have known him from the day or the early days in which he was born. They may have seen him grow up in their town. And as you read the rest of Luke 4, instead of responding positively, they were so incensed at Jesus' words that they drive him out of town and even try and kill him. 
So what do we make of the claims that Jesus makes here in his public ministry? I want to suggest that to understand these claims that Jesus makes and how they're fulfilled, we actually need to go back to Isaiah 61 to see the context for the promise in which it was made. So if you've got your Bibles there, turn back to Isaiah 61. It's a much sort of longer passage. Uh, the, The portion that we get, Luke has summarized some of it for us. One of the key things that you pick up as you read through Isaiah 61 is this little phrase that Isaiah uses is the coming promised messianic figure, one who will enact the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah makes this great promise to the nation of Israel that in the future one will come who will enact the year of the Lord's favor. It's a wonderful promise as you read through Isaiah 61 of restoration, the re-establishment of justice, particularly for God's people, And also, the year of the Lord's favour will also be a time of judgment for those who are against the Lord's people. Justice will be rightly established. Where the unjust have been seen to be doing well, and the righteous, in this case perhaps God's people have not, there will be a right re-establishing of just order. A time when justice will be rightly done for all people. And again, a time when good news will be proclaimed to the poor when, as we've seen in Jesus' reading in Luke 4, the captives will be released, when mourning will be turned into gladness. This is the great day that Isaiah is looking forward to, this great year of the Lord's favour. So where does Isaiah get this from? Well, to do this, we actually need to go back to Leviticus chapter 25, which I've printed here on the screen that you can see and I'll read. See, what is on view in Isaiah 61 is what was given in the law back in Leviticus of the year of Jubilee. This was the law as it was given in Leviticus 25. Count off seven Sabbaths of years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbaths of years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to his family property and each to his own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines, for it is a jubilee and is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to his own property. If you've not read this before, this just seems quite a bit strange, really quite almost astonishing and somewhat unbelievable. Every 50 years in the legal fabric of Israel, because this is given in the law, and within the societal expectations, every 50 years was to be a year of release, a year of restoration. It was, as we rightly understand it, a time to go back to the original land, as was given to your tribe and your clan and your family at the moment when the Israelites were to enter the promised land, It was the time when you would go back to the land that was fairly distributed among all of the people of Israel. If you like, it's where the board gets to be reset. You get to start again. And some of you might be sitting there saying, but hang on, that just doesn't quite seem very fair. What if I've acquired lots of other land? What if I've acquired lots of money? That seems I've got to give it all back again. Well, let me flip the coin. Let's just assume that you're early 20s, which many of you are, and uh, you are now a slave. You're an Israelite, and you're in slavery. That's all you've known. 
That's your lot in life. But as you talk to your parents and your grandparents, <coughs> you've realized that over the past couple of generations, uh, your grandparents actually made a poor business decision at some point in their life, before you even existed. They had to sell off some of the original family plot of land that they were using to grow crops and feed their family. So they sold off the land, which meant they could still work it, they could derive some income from it, but actually it wasn't theirs anymore. Over time, this meant that the family standard of living gradually fell, and eventually your parents, when they realized what was going on, they realized that they actually couldn't generate enough income to support both their parents and now you, because you've now come into the scene. So they voluntarily sell themselves into slavery. Slavery wasn't a bad thing sometimes. Guaranteed a place to live, guaranteed regular food, guaranteed protection. That's the lot you're born into. So how do you work yourself out of that? That's just not possible, actually. So what future is there if you then have children? Well, the great hope if that's your situation is, in a few years' time, it's the year of Jubilee. And do you know what happens? Your family land is given back and you get to start again. See, for some, the poor decisions that they'd made over the years had meant that they were unable to actually provide for themselves, let alone be generous and provide for others. But in the 50th year, it was to be a year of great blessing. Notice the land will provide without you having to actually work it. It's the year of the Lord's favour in all sorts of different ways. A time of great rejoicing when you get to start again. A significant milestone in the history of the nation of Israel that many people presumably would have looked forward to. This in itself is a significant restorative act of loving those who have now found themselves on the margins and are now vulnerable. A great act of social justice embedded in both the legal and social fabric of the nation of Israel. So why is it that God created such a pattern and expectation? Well, we see in the pages of Scripture that the God of Israel had very clear expectations for how He wanted His people to live. Before Him, in relationship with Him, in relationship to their neighbours, particularly fellow Israelites, and also in the way in which they related to those who were not Israelites, the nations round about them. And this expectation derives from His character and who He is. See, from the early days of Israel's formation as a nation, the notion that that society should be just is instilled right in the formation of it. This community expectation then flows from who God is in His character, and this then informs how His people are to live. And the means by which God does that is, He sets laws which are consistent with His character, that show His people how they are to live, that they might live like God. Uh, we've seen a number of different parts in the Old Testament about the character of God with regard to His justice. I've put some on the screen there, you can read through them. i just pick a couple, Isaiah 61. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity, in my faithfulness I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Psalm 89, the third one on the screen, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, love and faithfulness go before you. There's a number of different places, particularly with regard to what it means to care for and look after the vulnerable and the marginalized, just that's the one area we're dealing with now, where God's character of justice is actually outworking in His laws. 
See, if you want to know what it means to act justly, to live justly, to be just and fair to others round about you, the Christian Scriptures say, start with knowing who God is. Start with His character. And His character and nature then determine what is expected of those who would live according to His standards. See, if and when the laws of God were lived out as instructed, not only were the people being obedient to God in terms of their relationship with Him, but the laws when lived out also established a people like God. And not just individuals like God, but also a collection, a nation that reflected in this case the justice of God. I think there's this very true sense that when you, when the Israelites, if they were able to, lived out the law of God, they were acting like God. They were being obedient, but they were also acting like God. That's what it meant to be God's people. Not just obedience to His law, but God's people were to be like God in their character, in their nature. In God's wisdom at the history of Israel, He said, this is who I am, these are my laws, as you and when you seek to live like them, you will live like me. That's what's on offer. Now, in our particular case, of particular interest to God were those who are less fortunate than others. And there's a number of passages where God expects justice. And this direction of justice is broadly towards four groups or five groups of people. Uh, notice here in the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 26 what it says. You shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. When you have finished paying all your tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. The broad sort of five groups of people are the Levites, firstly. The reason why was because they were not given an allotment of land with the other 11 tribes. So how would they generate food for their daily support? Well, the other 11 tribes, because the Levites had been set apart as the priestly tribe, the other 11 tribes would bring a tithe, and the Levites, among, among offering some of that as worship to God, that would be their means of financial day-to-day -day dependence. Notice the other groups that you see there. There's the widows, the orphans, the poor, and the sojourners, or sometimes the aliens, not, not extraterrestrial aliens, not as if they came and visited Israel. No, no, the sojourner, the one who is without a land, without a country, perhaps the one who is traveling but is now residing in the nation of Israel. I guess in some senses our modern-day equivalent would be refugees. See, God's particular trajectory is towards these broad groups of people. In Zechariah there you'll see, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts do not think evil of each other. From the very outset, the laws that God gave to establish justice with a view to the vulnerable and the marginalized, recognize that some will have more and some will have less. However, living in God's community, as reflected in Israel's time through the law, means that to some extent, some people will need to give up some of what they have for the sake of others. For this is consistent with the heart and character of God. He gives to those who do not have which is why the year of Jubilee was such a significant year for Israel. It was the time for Israel to tangibly demonstrate 
the character of their God. Imagine the other nations round about them watching what was going on. And just going, seriously, every 50 years you like start again and you all go back to the beginning? So you were a slave, but now you get your a very tangible demonstration of the character of God. But also a time of great rejoicing in their dependence and thankfulness on God. A genuine outworking within the fabric of society. When those who, for various reasons, who were vulnerable and marginalized, were to be restored and redeemed. So how is it that we see the ministry of Jesus fulfilling this? Notice what we've done. We've started with Luke 4, where Jesus claims he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, which talks about this great year of the Lord's favor that is to come. What Isaiah has on view here is the passage in Leviticus 25, which promises the year of Jubilee, this great year of restoration. That's the thing that Isaiah is looking forward to, and Jesus arrives on the scene and says, today these words are fulfilled in your hearing. So turn back into Luke 4. What is it that Jesus claims? Jesus claims he has an anointing of the Spirit for a particular task. Now, earlier in Luke 3, we've seen that Jesus does receive, indeed, a baptism of the Holy Spirit from John. This confirms him as the Son of God and God's Son. And even straight away in the beginning of Luke 4, you see Jesus full of the Holy Spirit out in the wilderness resisting the various temptations of the Satan. See, already initially we can say, yes, Jesus fulfills Isaiah 61 in the way that he actually has an anointing of the Spirit. Jesus claims the blind will be able to see. Well, you don't have to read far through the Gospel accounts to see the numerous occasions where Jesus heals those whose physical sight requires restoration. He does it often with a word, sometimes with a touch. He does it miraculously. The blind, the physically blind being able to see. What an amazing release. The preaching of good news to the poor. Well, much of Jesus' public ministry concerns the proclamation of the kingdom of God. That great offer of inclusion that is now made possible to all who would be followers of Jesus. The release of those who are oppressed. Well, I think in a number of different ways in Jesus' public ministry, we see him releasing those who are under various forms of oppression, particularly those who are under the oppression of spiritual forces. So, for example, the healing of those who are demon-possessed. <clears throat> what about the release of prisoners from their captivity? I've been a Christian for a while, and I've sort of tried to regularly read through the Gospel accounts. I still can't find the account where Jesus gets together his band of disciples and they go and storm the local prison. And they set all the prisoners free. And they say, be free and run away. Although that would be a pretty cool story, but I'm fairly sure it didn't happen. So what's Jesus talking about? When, where do we see this promise of the release of prisoners from captivity being fulfilled? I wonder whether or not what Jesus actually has in mind here, and which is what he talks about throughout his public ministry, is the offer of release from the captivity of sin. It's that release from the power of sin, that release from the blindness of sin. And we see this most clearly offered in Jesus' death and resurrection. See, the fulfillment of the promise of Isaiah 61 in Jesus is seen in a number of different ways in his public ministry. Very tangible things, physical healing, restoring that Jesus performs. It's often directed towards those on the margins, those who are vulnerable, those who are poor, those who are marginalized by, say, sickness or disease. So I think when Jesus cleanses the ten lepers, they come to him asking for cleansing from leprosy to skin disease. He heals them and only one of them come back again. 
And what does the leper say? He says, I'd love to come and follow you. And Jesus says, no, don't do that. Go to the temple and offer the appropriate sacrifice for cleansing. See, what's Jesus done? He's healed the leper of his skin disease, miraculously. Which means that particular individual not only has been physically healed, but is now able to be included in society. Instead of living in the leper colony, they can now return home and live with their family. But what they can also do, even at that time, under the Old Testament sacrificial system, they can go to the temple. They can come legitimately into the presence of God. This was the person who was on the edge of society, the vulnerable, the marginalized. And Jesus, in this one act, does all of these things. There is genuine restoration at a number of different levels, in a number of different ways. However, Jesus, as part of his ministry, understands that the distinctions between people who are vulnerable and marginalized also operate at a much deeper and more significant level than just physical. Particularly, it's at a spiritual level. See, Jesus' establishment of a restored humanity is fundamentally a fulfillment of the promise that he makes. For one of the changes is that whereas in the Old Testament the rest of the nations were separated to some extent or to a great extent from the believers in the nation of Israel, now in Jesus, in his death and resurrection, a new community of believers is established. It is those, regardless of ethnic origin, those who by trusting in him can now move from being on the margins to now being part of God's family which then also means that the expectations of justice and how you are to act rightly before God, among others who are in God's family and among the nations, is now not just restricted to the nation of Israel in the obedience of the Old Testament law, but now actually applies to all believers, all who have accepted the name of Jesus, regardless of race and ethnicity. It's also worth remembering the promise of Isaiah 51 where in Isaiah 51 it says, The law will go out from me, my justice will become a light to the nations, my righteousness draws speedily, my salvation is on the way, and my arm will bring justice to the nations. See, this is the promise that God makes back in Isaiah. A time is coming when justice will be done, not just to the nation of Israel, but actually to all of the other nations around about, which will include, I take it, both the pronouncement of judgment, those who have been rebelling against God, but also the offer that those who accept Jesus as God's Messiah, the Christ, will also actually then seek to live justly under his rule, even if they are not part of the nation of Israel. So how does this work itself out, particularly in Jesus? Uh, There's a number of places we can go. The passage that I thought of was Romans chapter 3. So you notice as we read through Romans chapter 3, that prior to the Jesus, inclusion into the people of God and living in his community, well, you needed to be born a Jew. But the offer in Jesus is now for all people. Notice what Paul says in verse 21. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This is the Christ, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. See, Paul also recognizes that those who are the marginalized and the vulnerable in God's grand economy are those who are initially in their natural state outside the kingdom of God. Paul says this in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who are those who are the marginalized and the vulnerable? They are those who most need God. 
which Paul identifies initially as everybody. See, all in their natural state, including you and I, friends, were at one point spiritually dead, vulnerable to our own sinful behaviour, standing under the just judgment of God. From this natural state, we needed the rescue from the oppression and the captivity of sin. We were blinded by sin, unable to see God. And yet God in His mercy in sending Jesus offers us this free gift of inclusion. That we might be included and be able to call God Father, be His children. That we now might seek to live justly and rightly under His good law of following Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. Jesus' death and resurrection is the means by which this release is now possible. That's what God has done for us, for those of us who claim the name of Jesus. That's what's on offer for hundreds, thousands of millions of people in this world who do not realise how marginalised they are from God, who do not realise how vulnerable they are in their current sinful state. Friends, we were all like that once. God has been merciful to us and the offer is there for others. See, as Israel was redeemed from a former way of life, redeemed out of slavery, to now live in a manner that is meant to be consistent with the character and purposes of God, so too we as Christians have been redeemed from a former way of life, that we too might live in a manner that is seeking to be consistent with God's character, that we, when we live rightly, trusting Jesus, living by His Word, we seek to live like God. Now, this side of eternity, we will never be perfect. But we long for the day when we see Jesus face to face, when we will truly be able to live rightly before God. So, what are some of the implications for us, the people of God living under the Lordship of Jesus? Three broad things to finish. Firstly, we should rightly recognise that those who are marginalised and vulnerable are first and foremost those outside the Kingdom of God. There is a spiritual dimension that we need to first and foremost realise and recognise. This is a scriptural truth that we need to hold. As such, we as believers should love and care for these particular groups of people, or this group of people actually, those outside the Kingdom of God, by bringing to them the great message of hope and forgiveness that Jesus offers. Realising that God has been generously and graciously merciful to us. So we do not do it by boasting or by being proud, but we humbly offer this great message of reconciliation, this great message of inclusion back into God's family, helping people see how sin has so blinded them, how sin has so oppressed them, how sin has so bound them up as captives that they need the release that only Jesus' death and resurrection can offer them. So my first question to you is, do you see people this way? Do you see those who are not believers as being vulnerable, as being in God's economy, if you like, on the margins? Are you mindful of this for them? How are you going at loving them in this regard? Because the loving thing here is to graciously, generously, patiently and persistently offer the message of forgiveness in season and out of season. Secondly, we should rightly recognise that there will be those in our society who are, according to our society and also according to the tenets of Scripture, 
living on the margins and are very vulnerable. These may be particular people groups, ethnic minorities, for example. This may be those who are less socially advantaged than us. There's a number of different ways in which we could consider those who are vulnerable and marginalised, some of which we'll spend doing next week and the week after. But let's not lose sight of the fact that these people will be in our society and if our heart is rightly directed after God's heart, then our lives should genuinely and in an ongoing way reflect our love and care for them, that they might no longer be living in the margins and be vulnerable. Uh, The way in which this will be worked out, we'll consider next week, there'll be lots of different ways in which we'll work this out. Some of it will be meeting, perhaps, basic daily physical needs for those who are less fortunate than ourselves. For some, we will need to give up, if you like, some of our social capital to be seen to be associating with others who lots of other people in society would not want to associate with. For some of us, that will be mean actually getting out of our own little tribes, whatever that looks like. Being prepared to share a meal with those who are not like us. Friends, actually, that's what the heart of God ought to be doing for us, creating and growing in us. A heart for those who are in need. So how are you going at doing that? You might not have even considered it, what that looks like for you. In which case, today is the day to start. Do some work on it between now and next week. Come back next week and the week after. Thirdly, we should rightly recognise that there is an appropriate manner for the Christian community as the gathered group of believers, both at the local church level and to some extent at the gathering of local churches, the denominational level, there should be a rightly understood biblical understanding of what it means for them, that group of the Christian community, to behave towards the wider community. Uh, This should include the manner in which Christians live together, that the way in which we demonstrate God's love to one another within the Christian community and to those outside the Christian community is a great witness, a great witness to the character and nature of God. This will also have some implications as to the way in which local gatherings of believers, the local church and the denomination, will consider in their decision-making how they should act to the marginalised and the vulnerable in our society. What should this look like? How should it inform our patterns of behaviour? What will it cost us? Not Not just financially, but emotionally and in terms of our societal capital. We're going to particularly consider these issues in the next two weeks. We've got three broad areas in which we should cover. The marginalised and the vulnerable are first and foremost those outside the kingdom of God. Within our society, there are those who are marginalised and vulnerable for all sorts of reasons. Thirdly, the Christian community should have appropriate responses. All of these three things the Bible holds consistently. We run into dangerous territory when we preference one to the detriment of the others. All three are actually important in their own different ways. And so the challenge for us over the next couple of weeks is to work out how does the Bible rightly hold those three different aspects together? You will meet some who will say, the only thing we must do, hear the strong language, is preach the gospel. And that's it. 
That's how we minister and love the marginalised and the vulnerable. You will meet others who say, the only thing we must do is give to the poor. Hear the strong language. I don't find that distinction in the Bible. Actually, we're called to do both. So we'll have to work out together what that looks like for each of us. Would you pray with me? Father God in heaven, we give you thanks for the great kindness that you continue to extend to us, to allow us to meet publicly on campus and to have your word proclaimed. Father, we pray particularly that you might continue to grow in us uh, your great love. We thank you for the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the means by which we can call you God and we are your family, we are your children. Father, we ask please that you might help us to grow our heart, that we become more and more like you. Father, we know our own hearts and we know how difficult we sometimes find this, so we pray for your help. Father, we ask, please, that you'd help us to make us more mindful of those who are marginalised and vulnerable. Father, please make us more aware of these people. Please work out what is appropriate and right with regard to our help of them and for them. Father, we ask this, that we might rightly demonstrate what it means for us to live and love like you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.